I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to episode 53 of The Hilo, the weekly news and pop culture podcast brought to you by journalists Dolly Alderton and Pandora Sykes. It's all been going down this week. Kanye is running amok on Twitter. Camilla Long called him incontinent. He's been tweeting these brilliantly basic hypotheses about life and death. Meanwhile, Mary Beard is fighting back after being told she's too old to wear sparkly trainers. I didn't know about the sparkly trainers. Yeah, Nigel has been leaping to her sparkly trainer defence. Oh, good, good. I think Mary Beard is totally of the correct age to be wearing sparkly trainers. I'm so, so into Kanye West's tweets. <laughs> um, just these absolutely anodyne observations and phrases about life. So banal. But they're presented in this like quite <laughs> adolescent way as if it's this profound yes. philosophy. My favourite is, stop thinking about things for a long time without saying what you think. <laughs> I think they sit somewhere comfortably between sort of really shit dinner party and everyone getting stoned in someone's room in Freshers Week, sort of sitting by a tie-dye sort of sheet hung on the wall. And actually on that tweet about stop thinking about things for a long time without saying what you think, if you go onto the responses, they're so brilliant. Some The first reply is, I don't think pineapple belongs on pizza. Very profound. Someone replied to that, Canadian bacon, pineapple, black olives and jalapenos make a perfect pizza. Then someone wrote, Canadian bacon or ham? Then another person <laughs> piled in with, Canadian bacon is American ham. And I just love that Kanye's like real Plato moment was just like hijacked by a bunch of people wanting to talk about pizza toppings, which is quite in keeping with his new sort of stoner vibe, I think. It's actually very high low, that Plato and pizza. <laughs> I tweeted that they belonged in a room with a neon sign and a Berber rug. They're I the, love that. They're the sort of fare that a boy might use to woo a girl when he's like 15. Yeah. So some of, some of my favourites were, love is infinite. <laughs> we are dying to be ourselves. And we're in this so-called information age, but we are dying for wisdom. But There's why, a lot of dying in a Taylor Swiftian sense. Why is it so sense. funny? I feel like, am I being snobbish? Why no, no, it's it really so funny, funny. Because, it's, because it's really, really basic. On a more serious note, Kanye also made some daft claims this week about slavery, claiming that it was a choice. He's oh since adjusted God. his claim to comment that he was referring to African Americans now in the modern time and that it is a choice to be mentally imprisoned rather than physically imprisoned. Either way, quite bizarre. Obviously, there's been a bit of a meltdown about that. So it's been it's been a big week for him all round. Did you see the John Legend tweets that he screen grabbed? Yeah, I did. And I actually applaud him for that. You applaud Ka- Kanye for... For sharing that screenshot, yeah. I applaud yeah. John Legend for... Se- there's a lot of applause. Yeah. John Legend for sending it, Kanye for sharing it, but I love that he was sharing it being like, I'm a transparent kind of guy. And it's like, oh, actually, one of your best friends is just telling you you're being a bit of a dick. Yeah, well, it was a bit of a ticking They're off very close Legend. because Chrissy Teigen's... I can't believe I know this. Chrissy Teigen's <laughs> baby shower was organised by Chris Legend. Chris Jenner, Chris Legend. Why was, why was Chris Jenner? She hosted oh, it. They're very close. 
How do you know that? Um, I must have seen a picture on Twitter. I don't know, perhaps I was on your timeline and you'd retweeted Chrissy Teigen talking about a baby shower. <laughs> also, quick question. Do, is it, do you say Kanye West or Kanye West? Oh, it's a bit like either, either, neither, neither. Tomato, you say tomato, I say tomato. I, I always change it as we go. I think it's probably Kanye, but because we're English, we say Kanye. Kanye allows me to do one of my favourite jokes. What? Kanye West. I don't know, Kanye. <laughs> I don't understand. What can can you West? I, I don't know. You don't really you, need to understand it. No, you need. Is that a joke or did you make that up? Um, I think India just said it once and now we just say it every time one of us says Kanye West. Anyway, this has gone a bit derailed. Let's let's rail back. Railing back, I discovered a man I now feel very spiritually close with. I don't week. feel like this is railing back at all. His I think name, I know who you're gonna... <laughs> Do you know who I'm gonna say? I know who you're gonna His say. His name is Mike Coop and he is the Sainsbury's CEO. <laughs> He was caught on camera waiting to be interviewed in a London TV studio about how Sainsbury's are about to do a very big merger with Asda. And he was singing to himself, we're in the money. I just absolutely love it. I think the reason I really like it is I think if I were ever being, if I were ever granted corporate power. God rest our souls. Which, you know, thank God, I don't think it's something that's going to happen anytime soon. I really think this is the sort of gaffe that I would be guilty Was of. It a, like a 12 billion pound merger or something. <laughs> but he's also, it's such a jolly song and he's singing it. I think he is doing it to sort of calm his nerves and he's singing it in this like very monotone way. Sophie Wilkinson says it's very Mark Corrigan. He said himself, this was an unguarded moment. I love the choice of words. <laughs> trying to compose myself before a TV interview. It was an unfortunate choice of song from the musical 42nd Street, which I saw last year. And I apologise if I've offended anyone. And I think, Charlie, we will have to insert a clip here. We're in money, the sky is sunny. Let's send it, lend it, rend it, rolling along. We're in the money, the sky is sunny. Let's lend it, spend it, send it, rolling along. It reminds me of the Professor Kelly or BBC Dad meme, yeah. you know. God, let's not talk about that again because we love that too much for that to be in this episode. <laughs> Since we last gathered, the royal baby has been named and I'm quite obsessed with this. That's surprising. I wouldn't think you would have given a shit. Well, typically no, but what I love is how brilliantly repetitive or unadventurous it is. They basically recycle the name Louis. Prince William is called William Arthur Philip Louis. Prince George is called George Alexander Louis. Prince Louis is called Louis Arthur Charles. They only have about six names. Why do they do that? I just love the idea of them sitting around going, what should we call him? (laughs) God, I know. Let's call him Louis. You know, when they've had that conversation three years previously and gone, what should we do for George's middle name? I don't know. Let's call him Louis. <laughs> why Why do they do that? Do you guess because there's not many royal names that, like, they couldn't call him Jason. There's only, like, there's only a specific pot of names they can dip into. And I think they just keep on getting the same names. So are they limited to the amount of names? Yeah, I think they are. I think it's always kind of strategised. So anyway, there wouldn't have been a Princess Sadie. There wouldn't have been a Princess Sadie, and there definitely wouldn't have been a Dolly. Probably not a Hannah. Far no. too common, both of them. Sorry, Dolly's mum and dad. Leaving this anagrammatic nomenclature aside, what have you been enjoying this week, Hanny? I've watched part one of the BBC three-part documentary uh, on Stephen Lawrence, which is called The Murder That Changed a Nation. Oh, yes, I want to watch this. It's really, really amazing. So it's uh, it marks 25 years after Stephen Lawrence was murdered, and it tells the story of what happened before and during and after the murder with 
talking head interviews from people that were very close to him, from his family, from the police, from witnesses, from people in the area and the community that he grew up in, from his neighbours. And crucially, it tells the story of racism in England, particularly in that part of London at that time, which is obviously paramount when understanding um, Mm -hmm. this horrific murder. So as I said, I'm only one episode in, but it's very traumatic and very powerful and, and very well made. And I think it's really, really important that we all watch it. It's such a horrific story, obviously, but it's such an important part of modern history, uh, particularly when it comes to understanding racism in this country, both in everyday life and on the streets um, and in communities and in neighbourhoods, but also from authorities and in the press. So I would highly recommend everyone watch mm-hmm. that. You can watch that on iPlayer. I'll give that a look. I've also just discovered Radio 4's soul music. And I think I was told about this by a few listeners. And I'm so grateful that I know about it. Because it's a series that I really do feel was just made for me. Um, each episode, they take a song that means a lot to people. Or is very rich in history. Or has an interesting meaning. And they play out the song. And then they, they give a kind of oral history of it almost like a line by line analysis usually with historians or experts or commentators of the time but always with someone who was involved with the composition or the recording of the song so if you love music and you love kind of nerding out about music um which i do and there's a, there's such a joy for me in having a really really deep understanding of the construction of the songs that I love or the albums that I love. I just think this is the perfect series. The standout episodes for me so far have been the one that's focused on Is That All There Is by Peggy Lee. There's one on The Way You Look Tonight and a really good one on A Change Is Gonna Come, which is particularly moving as it's a song about civil rights and Sam Cooke's brother actually speaks throughout it. And once you know the story behind why he wrote that song and and what each line actually means, it will just move you more and more every time that you hear it. So it's a really special programme. Thank you very much for recommending it. That's a bit like, I think, me with authors. When I read a book I like, I have to go away and read every single interview with them. I read on their Wikipedia where they grew up if they have children. Um, And it sounds like that programme does that with music, which, as you say, is something that you're really passionate Mm. about kind of deconstructing. Mm. What have you been enjoying this week, Panda? Late to the party as ever, I have been enjoying the simple but beautiful poetry of Rupi Kaur and her anthology Milk and Honey. Milk and Honey was published in 2014 when Canadian Indian Rupi was just 21 and it sold 1.5 million copies. She's actually since written other poetry anthologies. There was some backlash, of course. I read a quite interesting Guardian piece when I was immersed in the poetry. She's been dismissed as overly simplistic and an Instagram poet. But I have to say, I'm really enjoying her poems. They're really accessible. And I think it's very important that we remember that poetry can come in many forms for many different audiences. It does not all have to be the bloody Iliad. Yeah, I agree. And also, poetry is dark. It's on its way out. Like, we need to make it more accessible. We need Absolutely. to make it not an elitist form. Another one of my favourites is George the Poet, who I saw at, um, I think it was the Cheltenham Literary Festival when we were down a few years ago. So, yeah, I agree. It needs to be really resurrected, I yeah. think, for, for a new audience. Anyway, I thought it was actually really beautiful. And she writes um, about a lot of things that are particularly interesting to a fellow young-ish woman. 
Something else which I know has been astounding a lot of people is Wild Wild Country, a Netflix series produced by Jay Duplass. Remember him from Transparent? It's Josh, yeah. And his brother Mark, about a largely forgotten and utterly bizarre part of American history. And I think you'd really enjoy it, Dolly. It's basically about in 1981, the controversial Indian guru, Bhagwan Sri Ranjneesh, also known as Osho, left his ashram in India after some fallout and moved his very large community, often described as a sex cult on account of the permissive attitudes towards sex and open marriage. And there's this truly traumatising piece of footage that they gained in the second episode of uh, these this kind of violent sex therapy where these people are just throwing themselves across the room into each other, sort of beating each other up and having sex at the same time. Anyway, so he moved his sex cult, quote unquote, and his 19 Rolls Royces to Wasco country in rural Oregon, where they built an entire new village from scratch with a shopping center, a cafe. They called it Rajneesh Param. Inevitably, his followers, who are called the Cyanassins, and they only wore orange and burgundy. So there's this actually accidentally hilarious bit where they're in the local store and they're like, and the choice of clothing was quite limited. And it's just all these people wearing orange and red, shop trying on like orange and red trousers. Um, so inevitably the followers clashed with the locals in the neighbouring town of Antelope where there was just 40 people and they were all kind of retired Christians absolutely flabbergasted by what was going on in the in the town next door anyway a series of bizarre crimes saw osho deported in 1985 bringing an end to to his sort of ashram away from home it is a fascinating documentary i can't believe i've never heard of this it's very up your street it's a little have you seen it cj i knew it it's so cj have you seen all six episodes god get a life (laughs) in like a week It's a fascinating documentary. I found it a little bit indulgent. I found it was a little bit slow and I'd kind of had my fill after two episodes. Nope. Yep. Sort of agree? No. No. I'm saying two thumbs up to the documentary. I'm disagreeing with you. He's disagreeing with me. Okay, we're all about sharing opinions here. (laughs) But um, it is meticulously researched. There's tons of archive footage, interviews with all the central characters. But I'm looking forward to seeing what else Josh from Transparent Producers, because this was all he would. They were. It was his production company with his brother, and they were the exact producers. As well. I think they're quite well known as as, as producers. Yeah, it's just quite funny because obviously I've done that terrible thing of when you think a character is what they are in real oh, life. Yeah, so I'm yeah. like, but he doesn't really have a job. He's just sort of scratching his bum and lying around in California. Joshy, <laughs> Joshy. <laughs> Thank you to our listener who recommended an Audible Originals podcast series called Breasts Unbound, hosted by an American science journalist called Florence Williams. The premise of the podcast is that culturally we only ever talk about boobs in the parameters of cancer, enlargement or sex. The eight-part podcast series looks at all those spaces in between from breast milk facials, I'll make you one later if you're lucky, to to trans men who can breastfeed, it's called chest feeding, to the fascinating phenomenon of why girls are developing breasts earlier than ever. It's not just a myth, it's a fact. It's mainly thanks to hormones in food, but as Florence discovers with the help of experts, it's also down to socioeconomic injustices. So put 
baldly, a girl who is poor, whose father has left the family home, is more likely to develop boobs at a younger age. We're basically all born in a stage of latent puberty. So my baby has puberty kind of in her, right. and it's the triggers from what is around you that sets off that puberty. No so it really shows that it is absolutely nurture as much as nature. Toxic stress is chronic, it could be low grade or high grade, but chronic stress, often typically in children, unfortunately, through violence, either in the home or near the home. And here's a weird one, father absence. That's a word we use to describe when a child is growing up without their biological father. So I think that's so interesting because I actually read that this happens in elephant populations also, that in really you know stressed elephant populations where there aren't so many adults and aren't many adult males, the adolescent elephants go through puberty and have babies much earlier than they normally would. So that is really interesting. If you're in this chronic low-grade stress kind of situation, which is what we're describing, the theory is that the body thinks, oh, we're going to die early too. We must quickly reproduce. I've also been tittering over a satire piece in The New Yorker on women having it all by the author Kimberly Harrington and recommended to me by my friend Leandra Medine, who this week also wrote a searingly honest piece that I found incredibly interesting for the website she founded, Man Repeller, about her postpartum selfies, which have proved very controversial. I will link that piece in the show notes as well as Kimberly's piece. Kimberly writes, as an inhabitant of planet Earth, I've heard a lot of people ask, can women really have it all? And other people respond, you can have it all, just not all at the same time. Well, guess what, everyone? You're wrong. I do have it all. Me. I have all of it. I have two kids and the unspoken pressure to act like they don't exist when I'm on a conference call. I have flexible morality and rigid immaturity. I have kids who have forced me to do everything in my life with greater efficiency and the professional assumption that I'm now less efficient for having kids, and so on and so forth. It's very, very funny, regardless of whether or not you have had children. All of that in the show notes. From the Hilo mailbag this week, Pandora makes me call it the mailbag, as if it's some sort of Santa sack in the corner of the room. <laughs> or like we're on Blue Peter. An email from Sarah Newey about the Revolt Sexual Assault Campaign Group, who are hosting a big launch event on Monday, May 14th, called Consent Matters, Millennial Voices Changing the Narrative. It's said to be a brilliant evening with TEDx-style talks from young activists including Gina Martin and action group The Pink Protest, who held a march in London to combat period poverty earlier this year, talking about their work in this area. The tickets are £8.50 and it's held at the Flamingo Rooms in London. We will link to the event booking page in the show notes. Please do not email us asking for it. It will be on the episode show notes. Cross my heart and hope to die. It always is. I hope you don't die. Support for the Hilo comes from the Google Pixel 2. Google has been built on asking questions and challenging the status quo. From search to email to maps and beyond, it has a history of challenging the norm and finding a better way. Regular listeners will be familiar with our curiosity challenge where we have been posing a question to one another from the philosophical to the personal to the surreal each week. We fancied a change, so in the spirit of Google, we look to someone who has challenged the status quo. This week's winner is Florence Kirby. The 96-year-old, yes, 96, retired headmistress is standing in this week's local elections in Newcastle-upon-Tyne. 
promoting elderly issues like education and independent living for older people. Florence said it's not always easy for older people to do everything online and keep up with modern society. There's a danger they can get left behind. Thank you to Florence for inspiring us with your actions and to our sponsor Google for allowing us to indulge our curiosity always. It's now time for the top line read by Pandora. Campaigners from the Be Here For Me group have lodged a High Court appeal against Ealing Council's implementation of a buffer zone outside the Marie Stokes abortion clinic, as recently mentioned in the top line, which means that anti-abortion campaigners and pro-choice campaigners alike cannot come within 100 metres of the clinic. Ealing Council is the first to implement the protest-free zone, backed by Sadiq Khan. We will keep you posted on the appeal. Kim Jong-un and President Moon became the first leaders to set foot in each other's countries, ending a 65-year-old hostility between North Korea and South Korea. Both leaders have also pledged to destroy nuclear weapons. Stop press, beer goggles do exist. Research by the University of Pittsburgh, published in the journal Addiction, reports that because social interactions are improved when people are perceived as attractive, one of the effects of alcohol on perceptions of physical attractiveness may lead individuals to derive more reward from social interactions when intoxicated. And yes, that is phrased a bit like a riddle. A pensioner offered a lift home to a robber after telling him he was too old for a fight. On returning home from the pub and finding a young, slightly bewildered thief in his bedroom, 86-year-old Harry Turner offered the youth a lift home, but he disappeared before he could drop him home. The Home Secretary, Amber Rudd, resigned hours after The Guardian published the deportation targets memo of which she claimed she had no knowledge and has been replaced this week by Sajid Javid. Sajid has said, we will do right by the Windrush generation. Scientists have revealed that stress won't increase your chances of getting cancer. The controversial thinking was found to be bogus by the University of Sydney. The Women of Colour group in the Time's Up movement backed a campaign called Hashtag Kelly this week, which urges labels, businesses, streaming services and music venues to boycott the R&B singer in response to the sexual abuse allegations made against him. R. Kelly's management have responded by saying, we will vigorously resist this attempted public lynching of a black man who has made extraordinary contributions to our culture. MDMA could help people recover from post-traumatic stress disorder, a pilot study has found. Scientists in California combined MDMA treatment in varying doses with psychotherapy on a study of 22 military veterans, three firefighters and a police officer, all diagnosed with PTSD. A year after the study has ended, 16 of the 26 participants were no longer classified as being sufferers of PTSD, while two had renewed diagnosis. Donald Trump's former doctor has revealed that he did not write a letter in 2015 declaring the then presidential candidate to have astonishingly excellent health. Rather, says Harold Bornstein in an interview with CNN, Trump dictated the entire letter himself. It was not my professional opinion, the physician remarked. We look forward to Trump's inevitable Twitter slam in retort. A Michigan Catholic school has announced its intention to hand out colourful modesty ponchos on prom night to students in inappropriate outfits. Parents and students at the Divine Child High School are required to sign a dress guideline agreement and many are not happy about it. 
Brace yourself, dancing queens. ABBA have announced they will release two new songs next year. Benny Anderson says, One of the songs is like we would have written it for today. The other we could have written in 1972. We enjoyed it very much. I hope you'll like them. Running the full gamut of song lyrics there. And that was The Top Line. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. We are so excited to introduce the author for our author special this week. She is Juno Dawson, a multi-award winning author, journalist and LGBTQ activist and spokesperson. Juno is a regular contributor to Attitude magazine, Glamour and The Guardian and to Women's Hour, ITV News and Newsnight on subjects concerning sexuality, identity, literature and education. Yorkshire-born Juno has written 14 books, including seven young adult novels and her memoir, The Gender Games, which tells the story of her transition from male to female and looks at modern gender identity constructs. Last month, Juno published Clean, another young adult novel about 17-year-old socialite Lexi Volkoff's journey to recover from heroin addiction. Juno, thank you so much for coming on the high-low. Pandora and I are both finding Clean dangerously compulsive. In your own words for our listeners, can you tell us the premise of Clean and um, tell us what made you want to write the book? So Clean is about privilege as much as it is addiction, I think. It's about a phenomenally wealthy young woman called Lexi. Her father is a Russian hotel billionaire and somehow and she has ended up addicted to heroin. The character of Lexi actually came about, I was living in Battersea, and I moved to Battersea just after the 2011 riots. And so about a year later was when all those court cases came to fruition. And the one, of course, that made the front of the evening standard was an incredibly wealthy Chelsea socialite who had somehow been looting from TK Maxx. And I was so intrigued as to how she had I guess, fallen from her social ladder, I guess. And so it really did become a case of Gossip Girl Interrupted, which I think is the most apt description anybody has said, really. Yeah, Clean's been described as Girl Interrupted meets Gossip Girl. I felt like it was Valley of the Dolls for Generation... Oh, I love Valley of the Dolls. Yes, I will take that absolutely any comparison to Valley of the Dolls. It's very dry, it's very snappy. You write with in-depth teen speak but whilst it is a YA book it doesn't feel cringy or teeny and I actually didn't even realise it was a YA book until I clocked that obviously as a YA author it sits within the canon. Did your years as a primary school English teacher in Brighton so on the teen field so to speak really help you hone your ability to write teenage characters kind of from both within and whilst outside because obviously you have the perspective of not being a teenager and not being a 17 year old teenage (laughs) heroine I'm 16 Um, 
I think the trick with YA or young adult or writing teen fiction is to treat them like adults. But also, I really recognised, not not to the extent of Lexi and her world, but I really recognised that when you were growing up, there were these kids that grew up in quite central London that came from phenomenal wealth. And I remember always just being astonished by how grown up they were. And it is so realistic. You'd meet these kids that all the markers that we kind of hit in our late teens and 20s, they were doing it in their sort of just early adolescence. I wonder if it's been socialised around adults as well. I wonder if if you were to live in a world like Lexi, if you have from a very young age been encouraged to have dinners and mm-hmm. haven't been sat on a kid's table in a harvester as I was. <laughs> which is, that was my childhood was very different to Lexi's. See, I was I was playing in a play area outside a harvester in Yorkshire, kind of. So I think it's also the economic abundance as well when you're young you're always you know you think to yourself you're like well when I grow up and have a job I'll buy this or I'll do this and how you are to be a real teenager kept captive by your parents is by your lack of economic freedom but if you have the money to buy adult things and do adult things what's stopping you from also living the life of a quote-unquote adult I read a really interesting article in the Times, I can't remember who it was by, on how chronic addiction, so the case of the Tetra Pak heir, Eva and Hans Rousing, you know, who the wife died in Cadogan Square and he just rolled her up in a tarpaulin and carried on taking drugs for four months before her body was found, decomposed. And that was contrasted with, obviously, the drug addictions in homeless people or, you know, people from very, very poor and underprivileged backgrounds. It was just written so brilliantly. I'm going to try and find it and link it in our show notes because it really drew those comparisons between people who have everything and nothing. And it's actually us in the middle who who are the luckiest of all because you have perspective Mm. and you don't have perspective when you are at either end of that scale, certainly not with, with this kind of... Because the rousing case was happening while I was writing. Was it? And you do take Lexi into, she goes to a high-rise council flat at one point, which just shows how those worlds collide. So dealer and drug addict. Yeah. Yeah. And I was saying to Dolly beforehand, I lived, and it features both in this book and in my next book as well, the Winstanley Estate, which is between Clapham Junction train station and Battersea High Street. And it's are very sad. I mean, they've been saying they're going to tear these blocks down for years and years and years, and they're still standing um, and still occupied. But from the towers of the Winstanley, you can see across the Thames to Fulham and Chelsea. And so I love this idea that literally a strip of water separates some of the most extreme wealth in London mm. from some of the most extreme poverty. But London is extraordinary like that. Yeah. I remember a piece in the New Yorker after, which we talked about on the podcast, I think, after the... Um, Grenfell. After Grenfell. Um, saying that we have this idea of because we have 10 million pound houses on one street next to a council block on the next street that we're all living happily together and isn't it lovely how we're sort of mixing but actually the geographical proximity does not belie the truth of of, of how it, it rumbles along your depictions of heroin withdrawal are incredibly visceral i actually learned a lot about drug taking and rehabilitation from reading it there was a passage i just wanted to read because i think for someone who hasn't been a drug addict it's it it kind of really steps you into Lexi's world as she's detoxing 
I'm going to burst like a sausage. My skin's going to split open and my bloated organs will slither out like eels. My bones are calcified, gnarled and stiff, twisting my body into ugly shapes. I'm a gargoyle, knotted in salty bedsheets. My kidneys have their own throbbing heartbeat. There's glass in my tubes, in my piss really kind of hits you mm. thank you yeah do you know that did sound good when somebody else read it <laughs> gosh I'm really good um, it was you know it's funny if any notion that I might try a little tiny bit of heroin to get my head around it quickly went out the window <laughs> when one of the biggest pieces of research that I drew on was a channel 4 documentary from the 90s about a writer who had done just that. Very high-end literary writer whose name completely eludes me now decided as research that he would try out heroin so that he could best understand a heroin addict. Flash forward five years and of course he's completely addicted, had failed at several rehabs, was living sofa to sofa and it was just a disaster and in fact, I think he might have even been called Cold Turkey and his friends encouraged him to go Cold Turkey and, and filmed it. And that was a really key piece of research. So you can see the footage of him. They filmed him, yeah. yeah. And that, that was a lot of where that scene came from, which was me sort of sort of putting words, putting to, words his... to what he looked like he yeah. was going through. And it is brutal. And that's, it's in the book because there is a danger. And I think Clean sort of dances this dance of... I imagine if you were to follow Lexi Volkov on Instagram, yeah. her life would look incredibly aspirational. Mm. And there's a, there was a danger with this book that Lexi would be in some way goals. And, you know, so I didn't want that at all. So that's why very quickly, but the first thing that happens is Lexi goes through detox, which is the most gruelling part of the book. I thought you navigated that really well because at times when it feels like it's teetering on if I was a teenager being like, oh, she's got 82,000 Instagram followers or oh my God, she's wearing Mew Mew age She's glamorous. Is that actually when she gets her phone back for a bit, no one's got in touch with her. Mm. And if I, and reading that now as a 31 year old, I was like, oh God, she has no friends. Mm. But you know, if you read that as a teenager, you'd be like, oh, she has no friends because awfully as a teenager, the worst thing in the world was not having friends. So yeah. I think immediately your reader's going to feel oh God, I'll keep my, my Topshop jacket if it means I, I've got my, my mates because she's clearly completely ice. Oh my God. <laughs> Did anyone else hear that little snuffle from Juno's tiny dog, Prince? It's, he's so cute. He looks like a little piglet. Oh, he's yeah. a tiny chihuahua. I'm going to try and get a picture. Um, I'm interested, you know, when you were writing it, did you come up against be it people at Hachette or an agent or editors or publicists who worried about the um, sort of strength of tone, yeah. Incredibly no. And I did feel, oh, and this isn't a criticism of any other YA because there's so much wonderful teen fiction out there, but it had all felt like it had all got a bit nice. And especially since Louise O'Neill, her last book, Asking For It, was a good few mm. years ago. I think that was 2013. So it had been a little while ago now. And I was like, come on, I want something really a bit grimy and a bit gritty. And, you know, we always forget that, you know, young adult does have the word adult in. These mm. are not kids' books. Mm. You know, we know that the biggest market for YA fiction is women in their 20s. So... Is it? How interesting. Yes. Oh, by far and away, yeah, the average age of a Twilight reader was 28. But it, strangely, the industry seems to focus on the young of young adult. Mm. And, it, you know, it boils my piss still that the, the YA <laughs> section in Waterstones is next to the picture books. Mm. I'm like, why, you know, if you go to America, the YA section is never in the kids' department. Mm. It's mm. always in a separate space. 
and um it's a very interesting genre i'm kind of more and more interested in it having read the book and talking to you about your descriptions as a way author and the fact that the last kind of really gritty book in the market was asking for it which i remember reading actually but obviously you took a sort of gamble in having this privileged character what made you take someone that isn't relatable because she's not you know as, as an outside reader she's not relatable to anyone unless they're a heroin addict from that perspective and she's not relatable to anyone unless they're very rich she's obviously relatable because she's a teenage girl and it's why fiction but did you feel like you were making it harder for yourself by writing her like that or did you feel like she had to be this extreme character there's a couple of reasons really I mean the first one was that this was my seventh novel all of my novels have featured a 16 or 17 year old girl at their core and after seven books I was looking for something that stretched me Mm. and stretched my readers as well and I think the fun with Lexi is that I present this girl on page one who is so horrible she's so vile but the therapist Dr Goldstein says right at the beginning we haven't met yet because she said something incredibly offensive and and he lets her off because he says, well, we haven't really met yet. And that was signalling to the reader that you've not really met Lexi yet. You've met an addict. I love that bit. You said what I've I've met. The doctor says what I've met is the addiction inside you. But then what I loved is you completely undercut any risk of it being a cliche by her being like, oh, for God's sake. You know, she kind of, she saw through any like motivational. She does. She says, oh, it's therapy talk. Yeah. And that's when I think I really love the book. Now, the interesting one, a lot of people have compared Clean to Junk, a book by Melvin Burgess that came out in 1996. That's about harmless teenage runaways who become heroin addicts. I didn't read junk as a teenager because it just felt too scary and dark and gritty and a bit mm-hmm. train spotting. And mm-hmm. at the time I was, I grew up on Beverly Hills 90210 and Saved by the Bell and Buffy the Vampire Slayer. I needed that gloss. Yeah. Yeah, and so slightly right. with clean, I've given you a bit of gloss, but then you very quickly realise that the gloss is complete veneer it's nothing it doesn't really exist but I think clean is a book that I would have read when I was 15 because I would have thought it would be like Gossip Girl Mm. but then very quickly you realize oh my gosh this is not Gossip Girl I was particularly interested in your crafting of Kendall she's a trans teenager whose issue is not that she is trans it's that she has an eating disorder was it important for you to write about a trans character who wasn't traumatized by her identity she's well adjusted from a gender point of view she's traumatized by a completely different issue and she has real levity when she's talking about her own identity like when she gets off with a fellow character and she says of the interlude he's one of them those straight guys who just loves trans girls he doesn't really see me as a girl that's all I want and when a fellow character sympathizes Kendall makes a quip about how small his penis is and everyone laughs and it feels like the subtext of you writing this character is or of her as characters, I'll see your prejudices and I'll raise you humour. It really lays bare that Kendall doesn't have a problem with herself, it's other people who do. Yeah, that was important. And this, again, I'm not knocking anybody else's books. Coming out narratives in teen fiction are very important. And I think especially when you look at the wonderful response that Love, Simon has had at the cinemas recently, we, we're always going to need coming out narratives for young LGBT people because it doesn't matter where we are 
in history. Coming out to your friends and family is bloody hard work. And it doesn't matter how many role models there are in the media, you know, me or Will Young and Graham Norton are not gonna come along and sit down with your mum and help you to come out. And that's why I think these books are so important. But that tends to be kind of a lot of what LGBT fiction does, which is it's just the whole coming out moment. And again, you know, I'm very wary in the media that as a trans woman, you can get slightly stuck at the makeover moment, mm. which has been the the before and after, the sort of the Caitlyn Jenner reveal. And then it's, well, well, that person's story is finished then. Hooray, she's come out as trans and everybody lived happily ever after. And of course, I'm now doing the living happily ever after bit. And it's actually not always happy. And it's certainly not ever after. You know, I've got 60 years to live out the rest of my days. And so Kendall is based on lots of real girls and boys I know who have been out as trans since they were, what, like 11, 12, 13 years old. You got peak at 13 years old. You've got the rest of your life to live. And so I was interested to pick up with Kendall eight years after she started her transition. Now what's interesting, I think if Kendall was my age or if Kendall was a bit older, she would possibly acknowledge actually that of course my transition has something to do with my mental health problems. <laughs> because as much as I would love to switch off being trans for a day, you can't. And actually being LGBT, it's every day. And although Kendall is in this clinic because she's dangerously underweight and because she's anorexic, she hasn't yet joined the dots. She hasn't maybe realized that, oh, possibly being bullied all through high school and being told I look like a boy might have had some impact on my mental health, which has resulted in me having an eating disorder. So I think if Kendall was another 10 years older, she would probably admit Actually, of course, me being trans has something to do with the fact mm -hmm. I'm anorexic. But at the moment, she she hasn't made that connection just yet. Thank you to Treatwell for 12 beautiful weeks and some stunning treatments, incidentally. We have a brand spanking, rather sparkling, new, very exciting sponsor beginning this week. We are thrilled to announce that support for the Hilo comes from none other than bloody Moet and Shandon, making every moment exceptional, remarkable and memorable. This is a sponsor that, as you can tell, stands for a cause that Dolly feels incredibly passionate about. Well, it is my favourite champagne. Only you could say a sentence like that. Claude Moet, yes I am saying it right, we'll explain why in a moment, founded the house Moet and Shandon in 1743. He was a pioneer and visionary and placed the utmost value on the importance of a social occasion in the Royal Court of Versailles. 275 years later and now the biggest champagne brand in the world. Moet Imperial is the signature drink for celebration from iconic champagne towers through to the world's first ever champagne vending machine. Moet and Shandon has marked several iconic moments from jubilee celebrations to being glass in hand at red carpet events from the Golden Globes to the Met Gala. I want a Moet vending machine. Why have you never organised this for me? I'll get you one for your 30th. Probably. In time for the champagne summer season, each week Moet and Shandon will bring you champagne tips from etiquette to glassware to styles and where to get the best glass in London for a Moet moment to remember. 
Starting off with trivia, did you know that Moet in Shandon is pronounced Moet because the founder Claude Moet was of Dutch heritage? I did! It's a nice line to pull out when people correct you on your franglais. They are actually the Philistines, not me. Thank you very much to Moet for sponsoring us and a big hand to Claude for creating it in the first place. Trans issues are at the forefront of the news and of modern consciousness at the moment. How do you find the role of spokesperson on the subject? Well, you've, you've got to do the disclaimer before you utter a sentence, which is, I do not speak for all trans people. Course, yeah. Because, you know, I've, I'm never going to be a trans person of colour. I don't have a physical disability. Um, I'm not lesbian. I can manage financially. So I'm in a position of some privilege. And so I wouldn't dream of saying this is what all trans people think mm -hmm. because of course what I love about the fact there's now a whole bunch of us working in the media you know you've got me and Monroe Bergdorf, Paris Lees, do India you, Willoughby. Do you feel like there you are in a sort of network do you talk to in terms of the yes, media we do, do you yeah. talk to one another about oh have have you been talking to this program or what did you think of this on Channel 4 or have you been asked on this panel? Like, do you sort of support each other as spokespeople? Because there aren't very many trans spokespeople that are familiar names. Yeah, in Korea, I mean, there's more of us all the time. But I think there's this bizarre stereotype that there is some, like, powerful trans lobby. Um, yeah, that you're all best that, friends. I don't mean that you're yeah. all sitting, kind of drinking tea, being like, but, so what are you campaigning for this week? But I'm all, yeah. you know, bolstering each other yeah. in terms of being in the media. Yeah, there is now. So hilariously, the powerful trans media has possibly been dreamt into being because we realised that, you know, my job is not being trans. My job is author. Yeah. And yeah. so it's very different for me to go on Lorraine, as I did earlier this year, to promote the gender games, one of my books. And it's very different for me to go on the radio to promote clean mm -hmm. rather than just, oh, we need... You know, well, we've we've decided to pay this absolutely wild bigger to come on our TV show, so we have to have a trans person for balance. Mm. How do you feel about the reporting of trans issues in the media? As Dolly mentioned, it has it's kind of more in the modern consciousness now. It was recently revealed that transgender athletes are to face much tougher restrictions in the 2020 Olympic Games in Tokyo. The maximum testosterone levels have been halved for female athletes, and of course there has been. The ongoing case of 60-year-old Maria McLaughlin, a gender-critical feminist, quote-unquote, who was punched at Speaker's Corner in Hyde Park last year by 26-year-old Tara Wolfe. A few weeks ago, The Telegraph reported that whilst giving evidence, Maria was warned to refer to Tara as a she. Yeah, I mean, I'm not going to comment on the case at Speaker's Corner because I know that case is ongoing and I don't really know the ins and outs. Um, in terms of the press, it's tricky because, again, this notion of the powerful trans lobby is such garbage because there are no trans editors. And it's when you follow the power back, there just isn't any. We don't have any commissioning editors at newspapers or magazines or TV shows. So where trans people have been given a platform, it's because we've been permitted one by people who haven't been trans. So our ability to get our voices out there is very much controlled. And I'm very lucky and, you know, I can't thank Jo Elvin enough because mm. right at the start of my transition, Jo Elvin came to me and said, I am so interested. I don't know enough about this. And I mean, Edward Enfield as well. Edward Enfield, one of the first things he did was he got Paris Lees in at Vogue as well. Yeah. So yeah. We, we completely rely on 
on support from people who are not trans. Mm-hmm. Um, it's difficult and it's been interesting over the last three years to see the media become more scaremongering as well. I was speaking to a wonderful woman called Christine Burns who transitioned in the 70s and she says with the media it's always been a little rise and fall. I think you know we get this with feminism and all sorts of different conversations in the media that you know she's seen the tone change several times since the 70s. You know the 70s felt quite a positive environment then the 80s you know became a very dark time for all the lgbt communities because mm-hmm. of the aids epidemic yeah. then in the 90s things got a bit friendlier then of course there was this real sort of turning point with nadia on big brother and it was very celebratory and then you know caitlin jenner and you know laverne cox and everything felt again very positive so maybe a backlash was inevitable but hopefully the backlash will be temporary because it is just you know, trans people have been around forever. Mm. You know, this is nothing new. Mm. I think a lot of this tone is sort of separating us off as like this extra species. Like they, we have come from Mars and we live among you. And it's just not that way, which is the transition is the process that people have taken to become men or taken to become women. And then for the rest of my life, you know, I will live out my days as a woman, writing my books, walking my dog. And that's about it. And I can't understand why it's causing so much heartache. I really don't. Mm. Before you go, we would love you to read a passage from Clean. Of course. Which section would you like to read for us? Um, I think I'm going to read the bit where Lexi has had her first meeting with her therapist, Dr Goldstein, and she's about to reach a turning point. I fumble with the childproof cap and get it off. There are like six pills. I doubt he's going to miss one. I mean, it's one poxidiazepam. What harm can it do? It'll just take the edge off. I still feel like I've been sucked out with a Dyson through my asshole and one little pill isn't going to fix that, but it might just get me through the day. It's just Valium. It isn't even an opiate. With a final glance at the door, I pop a pill and swallow it back. I thrust the bottle back in the drawer and return to my seat about three seconds before the door opens. And that's when the mint taste hits me. Goldstein stands in the doorway. Disappointment. No, resignation all over his fat beardy face. (laughs) What fresh hell is this? That was a tic-tac, he says. I was watching you via a video link. He points to a tiny subtle lens hidden on a shelf on a bookcase next to a wise owl ornament. Busted as fuck. You set me up. No one asked you to rifle through my desk, Lexi. He returns to his seat, calm as a summer cloud. Why did you do that? I don't know, I was looking for my phone. And why did you take the pill? I push myself out of the chair and storm to the window. I'm so embarrassed, I can't even look at him. Because he was there. And that's just something you do. Take prescription medications you find lying around in drawers. I don't know. I don't know why I did it, why I wanted it, but I really, really wanted it. I slumped down next to the radiator under the window, head in hands. He's got me. He totally caught me red-handed and I am such a twat for falling for something so blatantly obvious. Junkie honey trap 101. Lexi, why did you take that pill? I look up at him through my hands and knotty hair. Because I guess I have a problem. I say, happy now? 
So, you know, we wish Clean had been around when we were teenagers, although our provincial minds would have been totally blown. But we're thrilled to read it as adults too. Clean is published by Hachette and is available to buy now. This has been a Hilo author special. Thank you so much to Juno for finding us. Where can we find you online, Juno? Um, I'm Juno Dawson on Twitter and Instagram. That's probably the quickest. Nice and easy. Thank you to everyone who has listened to today's episode. You can follow us at The Hilo Show on Twitter and email us thehiloshow at gmail.com. We'll be back next week. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.